You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. I'm excited this morning to start a new six-week series looking at these uh, six meals of Jesus, trying to determine what they tell us about us and about him and about the nature of the kingdom of God. I'm excited partially because I've had four weeks out of the pulpit, which is too long. Um, I'm very grateful, by the way, to Jimmy and Dooku for taking the pulpit for me during that time, but excited to get into this new series. Part of the reason I'm excited is because everyone gets intuitively what I'm going to be talking about over the next six weeks. Everyone understands that food is important. Everyone understands the pregnant lady says amen. That's... <laughs> All right, everyone understands not just that food is good in its own right, but that it's important, that there's significance, multi-layered significance to meals. I read this uh, blog post recently about a particular diet I was looking into, and the first line was, um, food is not entertainment, food is fuel, all right? And it was trying to set an agenda for a strict diet based on the fact that there's nothing more to food than just calories in, calories out. That's what it's about. And our culture, more than any other ever, is committed to making that a reality. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we need to just strip food of any sense of enjoyment or celebration. We, we need to turn everything into um, mass-produced factory farm. Like, you need, to, you need to receive most of your food through your car window needs to be ordered via an app, right? So we're squeezing the life out of eating and drinking, celebration. And yet, even in our culture, we still understand that that's not actually true. There's actually more to food than fuel. My boy Judah uh, reminded me of this yesterday. We, uh, the family, uh, went to the airport early in the morning, dropped Renee off at the airport. She's in... Queensland, uh, settling the estate of her late father. The door is being closed and that whole thing. She's um, overseeing the sale of his farm. And so we were at the airport early. On the way back, Judah, as he does every 15 minutes, asked about food. And uh, he said, what are, we, what's, what, what are we eating? What's happening? Where, where, where's breakfast? And I said to him, uh, you know, we'll get home. I'll find something for breakfast. Don't worry about it. And his response was, hang on a second, this is meant to be a special breakfast. Today is special breakfast. And this is the way they refer to food that's more than just food. Special breakfast, special dinner. And he was right. I had told him that since this was a special weekend, a daddy weekend, they're used to mummy weekends with daddy away. Daddy weekend with mummy away is a new concept. And so to mark that, we were going to have a special breakfast. And so we did. We did that. He understands that sometimes there are more to meals than just the consuming of food, consumption of food. And Jesus was exactly the same way. Jesus understood that there is more to food than fuel. So there's at least three layers operating in every meal that Jesus consumes in the Gospel of Luke. 
There's at least three things going on. I want you to keep this in mind as we move through the next six weeks. First of all, there's the fact that food is just good in its own right. right? Having food is a blessing from God. I read earlier this week that no person in the ancient world, not even the richest person, would take any meal for granted. Right? Every meal, and especially in their, in, in their experience, every meal is a gift. It's a blessing. That's why before every meal, Jesus gives thanks. We continue the tradition without really understanding the gravity of it, right? Gives thanks because we've got food. This is amazing. So food shared with one another is good in its own right. It's good to have food and to have drink. And so that's why Jesus, especially in Luke's gospel, is constantly at meals. There's a commentator called Robert Karras, and he says that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving from a meal. He's always eating and drinking. And, and it was particularly important in the culture of the the Mediterranean in the first century, the ancient Near East. Very, very important. More important than we can probably understand. So I like this quote from Scott Barchi. He says, you got that up there? He says, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of the table fellowship for cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century. First century. He says mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment, right? Food as fuel. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. So much so that when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. So meals have this very profound function in the culture of Jesus' day a function of unifying people, of bringing people together. There is a, a, a surface-level operation of food being a good gift from God, and then there is something deeper going on. Jesus uses meals to reveal that second layer, that deeper meaning. He uses meals to reveal God's heart for people. Jesus uses meals to communicate the truth that God loves you, that God is for you, that he forgives you, that he includes you, that he's gracious, that he's committed to salvation and redemption. Jesus uses meals to communicate all of those truths all of the time. That's the second layer, a deeper layer, reason for Jesus to celebrate meals wherever he goes. And so you see this. People catch on to this really quickly in, in Luke 7. This is what they say or what he says of them. Jesus says, for John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man, that's speaking of himself, the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he says, yes, that's me. That's, that's what I do. I eat and I drink. And I do it so much that you can accuse me of being a glutton and a drunkard. And I do it in such a way that it's made clear that I'm a friend of tax collectors, of sinners, of those who are outside, ostracized. That's why he eats. That's why he drinks. He wants to communicate something of his heart, of God's heart 
for people who are otherwise ostracized. I'm going to quote Tim Chester about 200 times in this series. Here's what he says in his book, A Meal with Jesus. He says, the meals of Jesus represent something bigger, right? Another, another layer. They represent a new world, a new kingdom, a new outlook. But they give that new real, reality substance. Jesus' meals are not just symbols. They're also application. The meals of Jesus are a window into his message of grace and the way it defines his community and its mission. All of that is done through sitting down or lying down in his case, eating and drinking. And then even beyond that, there's another layer, an an even deeper layer going on in all of Jesus' eating. We're going to see this drawn out particularly in a couple of these sermons. Jesus uses meals as a way of illustrating a picture of the kingdom of God itself. He says the kingdom of God is like a meal. He says this frequently. So again, all just from Luke's gospel, Luke 13, he says, they will come, that is people, from east and west, from every nation, from north and south, to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. For Jesus, the kingdom of God Right, Eternal life, life in his kingdom where he rules and reigns is not about sitting on clouds. It's not about harps. It's not about cream cheese, although there might be cream cheese there because it's about eating and drinking. It's a, it, the kingdom of God is a banquet. And again, he says in Luke 22, I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. So Jesus, talking about the kingdom of God in terms of eating and drinking, as far as I'm concerned, it gives eternal significance to something that we're tempted to just reduce down to fuel. There is eternal significance in eating and drinking. Isaiah's... um, vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Messianic banquet, is, is, a, is, a, is a huge feast with the best meat and the best wine. That's his image of the kingdom of God. And Jesus picks that up and runs with it. So, meals, they're important. And we're going to see through this that Jesus uses them to illustrate very important truths. Today we're going to look at what Dooku read for you, this this interaction that Jesus has with Levi, the tax collector, and then the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And, uh, um, and I'm going to try and show you three things. I've got three points here. First of all, something about um, outside in, inside out, and upside down. I realize that doesn't make any sense to you, but we'll see. Um, see if I'm onto something here. First thing I want to look at is this idea of, of the outside coming in. So in verse 27 to 29, this is what it says. After this, that is after he has just both healed someone and forgiven their sins, doing something only God can do, after that, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow 
Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. Tax collectors. Levi is a tax collector. The majority of people at this meal are tax collectors. And you might know something of the context for um, Israel's view of tax collectors in the first century. Tax collectors were seen as traitors, as enemies. They were enemies of the people because they took advantage of their role. So you remember at this time, Rome is occupying Israel. They are exercising what was known as Pax Romana, right? The, the peace of Rome. They, they go into areas that were once self-governed and they institute Roman government. And they, they keep the peace by absolutely destroying anyone and anything that works against them, tries to resist them. And so into this, they have established this, um, this system of tributes where we will govern you and just so that you can say thank you to us for governing you with an iron fist, you will need to pay us tributes, pay us taxes. If you don't, we'll kill you all and then we'll, you know, we'll have this land to ourselves. Uh, in the meantime, we'll do you a favour and let you live and in so doing, you can pay us. We can make money from leaving you alive. And so they used Jewish men to be the collectors of this tax. And if that wasn't bad enough, as far as we understand, tax collectors in that day would not just charge what Rome told them to charge, but charge a whole lot on top of that so as to line their own pockets. So enemies of the people, right? They're overcharging people. They're taking advantage. They're lining their own pockets. Enemies of Israel because they're working for the occupying force. There is a force occupying God's own country. This is not just the land that we have been born into. This is the land given to us by God himself. The promised land is occupied. And so tax collectors are in bed with the enemy, not just enemies of the people, but enemies of Israel, which means that they are enemies of God himself. God's plan is for us to live here in the promised land with a, a self-autonomous rule. These people are aiding the people who are stopping God's plans and purposes. Therefore, those people are not just enemies of the people, enemies of Israel, but are enemies of God himself. That's the tax collector. That's Levi. And so the Pharisees ask the obvious question. Verse 30 says, But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples. Why? Why do you guys eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus just healed a guy and forgave his sins. He can only do that if he's God. So he's saying he's God, he's acting like God, and yet he is as God, eating with God's enemies. This doesn't make sense. Particularly in the day when eating with someone was to, a way of showing your approval of them, right? Your affinity with them. How is God eating with God's enemies? This does not make sense. They understood 
that if the Messiah was to come, he would bring God's kingdom to bear on the earth. They understood better than anyone that God's kingdom was going to look like a party. It was going to look like a banquet, like, like Levi is putting on here, a large banquet. That's what the kingdom of God is going to look like. Their problem is with the guest list. Their problem is not that Jesus is celebrating and eating and, and, in, and inaugurating the kingdom in that sense. It's that he's invited these people. Those people are not invited. Enemies of God cannot be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And yet, Jesus uses this public meal as a public demonstration to the watching world that God's kingdom is for these people. It's outside in. He's going to do this again next week. We're going to look at the meal he shares with Pharisees again, and then a sinful woman, a prostitute, comes in, and Jesus doesn't kick her out. He welcomes her, and he forgives her sins. It's outside in. It's this constant outside in. Second point, I've got to move. Inside out, right? Inside out, verse 31 to 32. He said, Jesus replied to them when they, when they objected to his eating with these people. He replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is going to welcome the outside in, and then he is going to cleanse them from the inside out. Now, he's eating with them. He's welcoming them. He is publicly approving of them, but he's also referring to them as sinners who need to repent. He doesn't just welcome people from the outside in. He is committed to cleansing them, to forgiving them, to renewing them from the inside out. The Pharisees had this idea, talk about this in a sec, but they, they, their whole idea was that a transformed Israel would transform the world. And most of the arguments they have with Jesus is a conflicting idea about how that's going to happen. Both of them know that's the way that God's going to institute his kingdom. Transformed Israel is going to transform the world. The Pharisees believed that that would be achieved through adherence to the law, to obedience to every possible conceivable law, and through the exclusion of impure people. Right? How do you make Israel really pure? Obey the law as much as you can, and then those people who don't obey the law, you get rid of them. That's how you purify a people. Jesus says, it's not enough to obey external laws. You, act, you actually have to address what's going on in the heart, in the inside. So at another meal in Luke's gospel, Luke 11, here's what's going on. Just do this real quick. He was speaking, as he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. He's always eating people. You notice Jesus is always going to someone else's house too, right? You should never be ashamed just to go to other people's houses. That's what Jesus did, right? Um, 
So a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. Big faux pas. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and evil. Fools. Didn't he who made the outside make the inside too? And he goes on to explain that it's not enough. Again, using a meal, using dishes, using things to do with meals, he uses that as, a, as an illustration, as a metaphor, as a parable of this truth. It's not enough to cleanse the outside. It's not enough to have outward obedience to the law. There needs to be an inward change. There needs to be change from the inside out. And so that's why he says, yes, I welcome these tax collectors and sinners. Yes, I eat with them. Yes, God, God's heart is for them. And I'm going to call them to repentance. And this makes, I was going to say some of us, I think this makes all of us uncomfortable. Because all of us tend to fit into one of two camps. Either we kind of side with the Pharisees when it comes to this kind of thing. Like, you know, in the church, we want to be as pure as we can. The church exists to glorify God, and so we kind of need to limit the membership. We kind of need to include as many people as we can who get the gospel and live holy lives, and those people who don't and are willfully turned away from God and are you know, living sinful lives, we kind of keep them at arm's length. I met with my great friend and mentor, Peter Adam, just a couple of days ago. And he told me this story about, he didn't name the church, but he was speaking at a church recently. And someone kind of told him on the sly that in their small group, someone had wanted to join. And the small group leader had said they couldn't join, and I quote, because they were just not their kind of people and Peter's response was well I don't think you're God's kind of person if we exclude people because they don't quite fit the kind of ideal we have for what a Christian should look like and behave like then we have completely missed the message we're not living as Jesus lived we, like the Pharisees, believe that God's kingdom will come through purity and exclusion. We do our best to obey the law, and then we keep out those people who don't. And then maybe if we just purify ourselves enough, renewal, revival, kingdom will come. Others of us go the other way. And we are with Jesus, right? Yeah, outside in, outside in. We just want to, we want to include people. We're inclusive. We, we're not judgmental. We're just everyone can come in as they are. But what we lack is this call to repentance. It's inclusion without holiness. We see Jesus referring to these people as sinners and the need they have to repent, and we kind of feel like that's a bit offensive. 
as so often is the case, Jesus is both of the things that we should be. Radically inclusive, and yet calls them to radical repentance. It's like when he speaks to the woman, right, caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. Outside in, inside out. Last one, upside down. Jesus turns everything upside down. The expectations that first century Jews had of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom, he just took all of those expectations and flipped them. Let me read what he says. The rest of the passage, verse 33 to 39. He said to them, John's, oh, they said to him, beg your pardon, the Pharisees, the scribes, they say to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers. And those of the Pharisees do the same, right? They're doing the right thing. They're keeping the law. They're obeying, doing all that they can to bring in the kingdom. But yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. He also said to them, no one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment, otherwise not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the wineskins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put in fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, because he says the old is better. I'm out of time. I need to be brief. Here's, here's the big idea. Jesus wants the Pharisees to know that he's not throwing away their precious Old Testament law. It's precious to him as well. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. He hasn't come to trash their law. He's come to fulfill their law. Leviticus taught these Pharisees, these scribes, Leviticus taught them that holiness was essential, that God's plan for his people was holiness, obedience, what we would call Christ-likeness, right? That's his, his desire for them. And they're right in that. God does desire holiness. But they are wrong in thinking that mere obedience to the law will save them or usher in the kingdom. They're wrong to think that excluding impure people aligns with God's heart for his people. Jesus says, listen, you're halfway there. You've kind of got it. But here's how I'm going to fulfill the law. Jesus is going to fulfill the law through radical inclusion and radical repentance. That is, he's going to come for all people. His death, burial, and resurrection is going to be big enough, significant enough to usher all kinds of people into the kingdom of God, even the worst sinner, 
is welcome. And he's going to send his spirit to be living in, active in the lives of those people who have been welcomed in such that they will be cleansed, renewed from the inside out. He's going to achieve what the law could never achieve through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the giving of his spirit. He hasn't come to abolish it. He's come to bring it to bear. So here's what's going on at this meal. Jesus is doing a whole lot just by sitting down with these guys. He's demonstrating that those who are outside, those who feel like they're outside, those of you here this morning who have come because it's Sunday morning, but as far as you're concerned, God is not for you. For those of you here this morning who think that God loves a future version of you, there's the version now that is wretched and vile and sinful and habitually turns against him. And then there's a future version of you, right, who through obedience to the law and purification and the exclusion of bad influences, right, that version of you is the version that God will love. And so then if you can just come to church enough or if you can just give enough or if you, whatever, you fill the blank, then maybe finally you'll be brought from the outside in. And Jesus demonstrates here that it's in the midst of their sin that these notorious sinners are welcomed in. Again, here's Tim Chester. Here's what he says of this meal. It says, when Jesus eats with Levi, the message is clear. I hope it's clear to you guys. Ready? Jesus has come for losers. People on the margins. People who've made a mess of their lives. People who are ordinary. Jesus has come for you. The only people left out are those who think they don't need God. The self-righteous and the self-important. Who are you this morning? The self-righteous and the self-important will be dealt with every single week through this series. Jesus will not let you rest in self-righteousness. If you're here this morning and you're someone who's made a mess of their life, Someone who feels like if God was just, he would hate me. Maybe someone here this morning who actually hates themselves. You need to know that Jesus came for you and Jesus is for you. So come, come to the banquet, come to the table. Come and sit with Jesus. Eat and drink and celebrate God's goodness, his grace. That's who Jesus is. 
He came eating and drinking. And they called him a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners like you and like me. So come. I want to give you an opportunity to come. To come forward and to pray with someone. One of the best ways that you can come to Jesus' table is to come and meet with him in prayer. He's always available, always willing, always able to sit with you at his table and hear from you. So come, sit down with someone and pray together at Jesus' table. It's a table of inclusion, of welcome, of salvation, of redemption. It's a table around which the mess that you've made can be cleaned up. The darkness that's inside of you can be lit up. Jesus welcomes from the outside in and works from the inside out. So come. Let me pray. Father, please draw to your table everyone here this morning who needs to know and experience your great love, the power of your approval, the transforming nature of your adoption. Lord, we know that we're just kids playing in a slum in the mud. Help us to know that you have invited us into the palace not just to visit, but to live as your children. You've invited us to a banquet where the best meat, the best wine, the best of everything you have to offer. Lord, may we come. Please overcome anything in us that wants to stay in the mud, anything in us that thinks we're not welcome at the table. Invite us, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.